Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is Life Health Pro Top 30 Under 30, a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable, and is a financial uh, advisor for Henderson Financial Group. Joining me today, Brenton Harrison. Brenton, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, I was recently watching something on Facebook with Kobe Bryant. It actually wasn't Kobe. It was a, a person who played on his team, and they talked about Kobe at one point was noted as being a ball hog. And the, one of the players asked Kobe, why are you that way? And he goes, well, when you show up just in time for practice and you leave immediately after practice, and I'm here two hours before practice and I'm staying three, four hours after practice getting my work in, I don't trust that you're putting in the work to make it so that we can win an NBA championship. So I'm not passing the ball to somebody who won't put in the work right. that I'm putting in. So I was I was perusing all of your all of your great work and I came across something that resembled that which is that everybody has an allotted time that they're supposed to work. Mm-hmm. But you make your progress and you move up the ladder with the things that you do outside of that time. Talk to us a little bit about what that means to you in the financial institution and how you got from college to where you are with that mindset i I think college is actually an excellent place to start 
Uh, I went to a historically black college down in Huntsville, Alabama, Oakwood. And when I was there, and I'm a third-generation Oakwoodite. My wife is a a third-generation Oakwoodite, so it runs deep in our family. I was in the business department, and the interests that I had, which were primarily in entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. um, most of the residencies, the internships that the school provided were not catered to my interest. And I think that I had a collection of friends, including myself, who realized if we're going to make our resume look the way we want it to look, or if we're going to get the experience that we want to experience, the school at this point is not going to provide it for us. They were more so interested in people who wanted a particular career path. (laughs) So even at that point, I was always interested in who can I meet outside of the classroom that I can form a relationship with, uh, with whom can I volunteer to, to just get some experience. And you, you don't know at all times why the work you're putting in will become relevant. But when I started as a financial advisor and realized, oh, I've joined a profession where there is no base pay, where, <laughs> where there is no one saying like, well, hey, because you came today, it will give you a certain amount of money. It was all about how productive can you be in the time that you have. Mm-hmm. It suited me really well because I have always been of the mindset of, okay, well, if somebody comes and offers me something, that's great, but I'm going to work as if that won't happen. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't happen, I'll still be okay. So yeah. it just, it suits me really well to be more in control of my efforts and the outcome than leaving that up to someone else who may not have the, my interest at heart. Sure. Well, I think that that's, that's really important for people to hear because entrepreneurship is a mindset of go get it. Mm-hmm. And that's been an interest of yours from the very beginning. And of course I know the origination of that because you're the, the offspring of two entrepreneurs <laughs> I am. Uh, and two of my favorite people in the world, your mom and your dad and how lucky can you get to have awesome parents to, to have you uh, to help guide you. One of the things that I'm really interested in about your belief in the education system is that you're on the mayor's council for uh, financial literacy in, in high schools. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think one of the biggest things that I notice from my own personal education, both in the high school and then going to Mississippi state and coming here to you know Nashville and doing what I've done is the fact that a large majority of the education that I received they don't really use on a day-to-day basis but the things that would be really helpful we never even talked about right. and understanding finances understanding how to accrue financial wealth to the point of living the life you choose to live not necessarily you know yachts and caviar mm-hmm. but like a, a life that you would could deem successful there are steps required and and processes to go through but are you noticing that what, what you're helping with the mayor's council with is a completely voided area of education for kids in the high school level it is and, and there's a number of reasons behind that you know you have to have someone to teach it yeah and you have to have the funding to teach it so if you go into a high school you could have a very willing teacher who says, I have an interest in financial literacy, but it's not what they do. You know, it's, 
I'm a math teacher who likes to budget or, you know, I'm a history teacher who has this interest and maybe they give them a class and it's probably going to be an elective mm-hmm. where you don't have to take it. And if you don't have a large pool of resources, you're going to do the best you can with what you have. Yeah. So when we take these kids who come into the high school program uh, opportunity now that the, the mayor has put on over, you know, multiple mayoral administrations, you're finding kids who, you know, some of them are coming from disadvantaged homes, but some of them are not. And none of them have a base level of financial literacy. I think there's a big misconception that just because somebody earns a lot of money that they suddenly know what to do with it. Yeah. So when we can get them young, it's interesting. The thought process that goes into how to manage money well translates across so many other things that it's all beneficial. Yeah. You know, you have someone who, if, if, if I'm talking about credit cards and student loans and I'm breaking down the, the differences between compound and simple interest, that's going to help them in their math course. You yeah. know, if I'm talking about why something is the way it is financially, um, some of that's going to bring in the history of some of the things that have gone in our country mm-hmm. that are beneficial. So it, it needs to be added, but it doesn't surprise me that it hasn't been added. But at some point, don't you feel like, I mean, think of, uh, you, you said it. I would almost say that I think nine out of every 10 kid, uh, I'm going to even say nine out of every 10 humans mm-hmm. have literally no idea what true financial literacy is. And yet it's probably, it's the number one cause of problems, I think, that are health. Finances are a number one cause of the vast majority of stressors for all people. But yet we do nothing to help alleviate the pain in the educational system, which makes zero sense to me. Absolutely. And financial stress can lead to health problems. <laughs> yeah. If it's studies about, you know, makes you at higher risk for a heart attack or diabetes or obesity, you know, it, it impacts your relationships uh, at work and at home. So yeah. it, it's a huge thing. Um, and again, if you, there has to be someone to teach it. You have to have the confidence to teach it without saying like, you know, am I in a position to do this knowing that I might have some things going on in my own finances that aren't in tip top shape. Yeah. So there's all these conflicting factors. But at its core, if people don't know what they're doing with their money, they're going to be beholden to the people who do know what they're doing with their money. Yeah. So to me, that's why I want to step in and say even when it comes to something I talked about credit card debt, you know, we'll talk to people who they have the assumption that they will always have credit card debt. Like it's just another bill in their life. Wow. <laughs> and to me, even breaking down that misconception of saying, well, why, why would that be the case besides every person that you knew growing up had credit card debt? It doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the way that you build wealth is, you work really hard, you save in your 401k, and hopefully after a long enough period of time, you can retire. Well, yeah, that's how some people will do it, but there are other ways as well. So let's talk about those other ways. Yeah. So I would imagine, although I don't know this to be certain, but to be a top 30 under 30 and then a top 40 under 40, you didn't go about your business model in a standard fashion you probably went into a nuance or a niche market that you wanted to focus on because you felt like you had either an advantage or you saw an opening or a weakness in the field so to speak to 
attack. Do you have a particular market that you're serving that you've zeroed in on that you feel like you have the greatest impact on? Or did you go about it in the standard way and, you know, hard work and good luck met at the right time? <laughs> as as odd as it sounds, I made inroads by focusing on clients that other advisors didn't want to work with. Wow. Uh, and some of that is not saying, oh, I I just am stating out loud that I don't want to work with it. If you're a financial advisor, you want to work with people who are going to make money for you. So you're going to avoid people who have a tremendous amount of debt and don't have a ton of assets. Mm -hmm. And you're going to focus on the people who have assets and don't have as much debt. So when I come into the financial services industry, because of healthcare in Nashville, because of the music business in Nashville, because of banking in Nashville, there are so many financial advisors here. Uh, just an overwhelming amount. And if you don't have some specificity to who you're targeting, why would you stand out compared to the 5,000 other people that they could, sure. could choose? So when I came, I was very intentional about working with people who are not yet wealthy. I work with people to establish wealth, not work with people who already have wealth. Mm -hmm. And the majority of my clients, when I start working with them, they have a negative net worth. Wow. So I will go and I'll meet with a young couple who have med school debt, you know, or uh, are trying to get their Ph.D. or are just in school and trying to just get a high income earning career. Mm -hmm. And I might start out and they might have a negative two hundred and fifty thousand dollar net worth. Well, what financial advisor anywhere is going to want to work with that couple? They're going to say come back to us in 10 years when you've turned this around and you meet our investment minimums or you meet our fee minimums. And when I started, I started forming relationships with all those people. Even if I wasn't working with them as their advisor, sure. my philosophy was everybody deserves at least an hour talking with a trained professional. So for years, I would meet with couples on Sundays. I would meet with them at night. I would go over their student loans with them. I would help them with their budgets. And all of those people weren't my clients, but five, 10 years later, they all remember that I added value. So when they are in a position where they can work with me or when they're in a position where they can refer, mm -hmm. they're going to refer to the person that was willing to sit down with them. So it took probably three or four years of me having to proactively approach every single client that I wanted to work with before the tide started turning and I started getting more and more calls of someone who said, hey, I earn a good income, but I can't find someone who is a financial advisor, but also understands student loans. Or I can't find someone who will work with me when I don't have at least a quarter of a million dollars in assets. But I talked to my friend and they said that a couple years ago, you helped them. Will you help me? And after that time, I, I really can't think of the last time I've had to reach out to somebody that I have to work with. We're 100% referral based. That's awesome. It's, it's fascinating. Like that, that's a very shrewd and in kind of a backdoor sneaky, intelligent way to build your business, which was because as we I've already said, I mean, I don't know that I had much financial literacy until I was 40 and I'm not quite sure where my level of literacy currently stands. <laughs> I'm interested in it and I pay attention and I have investments uh, that, you know, I have, I have a reasonable amount of retirement sitting in a, in a pile. 
so which is which is comforting. But I, I still would say that I only did it because it's kind of like what everybody else was doing, not because I had any type of insight. And the first thing that really kind of turned my head were two books simultaneously came out. One was Tony Robbins, Money Masters. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. And then in that book, he interviews Ray Dalio. And Ray Dalio just came out with a book called Principles. And so I started digging into first Tony Robbins' book, which is a little bit more into how to make more money out of the money that you have. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really, that was like, I would say I got the most of my education out of that book. And I was like, man, I didn't know any of this. That would have changed everything that I would have invested my money in if I'd have known what I know, you know, off of this. But uh, it's also only one person's perspective. perspective. Mm-hmm. And of course, he did interview other super successful, you know, financial advisors and planners, et cetera. Et cetera. So, I mean, it's not like it was just Tony Robbins because he interviewed Ray as well. But I was like, Ray went into great detail. I was like, man, I have, I mean, I'm, at that time I was 45 and 47 now. I was like, man, I missed the boat. But you don't really miss the boat because you got time on your side. Time's a powerful powerful endeavor when it comes to interest and compound interest where did what, at what point in your either your high school life or your college life did you figure out that this is the road that you wanted to choose and if there was any kids out there that are and i got a, i got a lot of like junior golfers that are that'll listen to this why should they consider when they go to college uh a road down the financial pathway it is in my opinion, the most flexible in terms of your your work-life balance, um, fulfilling way of building a community. Uh, It's not flexible when you're starting. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make that clear. (laughs) And I still put in a lot of hours now, but I I put them in on my terms. I build my schedule. Uh, I choose with whom I want to work which is a tremendous opportunity to be able to say that I, I get up every day and I work with my friends. Yeah. So if I put in a 10 or a 12 hour a day, yeah, nobody likes working that long, but probably an hour and a half of that was at the end of a meeting with a couple that I've known for years, just shooting the breeze about how their life's going Yeah. and, and building those relationships. And when I was growing up, you mentioned that I'm the son of two entrepreneurs. The only thing that I connected with entrepreneurship was that my parents were in control of their schedule. They never missed a basketball game, football game, uh, anything that my sister and I were doing, they were there. So Mm -hmm. I I associated entrepreneurship with just the the budgetary, the, the scheduling flexibility in financial services. Now that I'm in that form of entrepreneurship, the ability to meet with the couple and a year later say, hey, you're in your first investment property or you've bought your first property or you sold a business. And part of that process involved information that I gave you, things that you didn't know how to do until we started working together. You Mm -hmm. get to be a part of so many people's stories and it's really, really rewarding. So I, there tons of ways to be in financial services but the the way that I do it where I get to work hand in hand with people I wouldn't change for the world and and being able to be a part of those stories yeah well as I'm just watching you deliver your message it's pretty pretty telling the power of DNA like so you got really you have uh, one of the greatest moms anybody could ever ask for <laughs> I right? agree 
And then your dad does motherly type things because he takes care of people that are sick and, and in an emergency room care. So you have two people that take outrageous amount of care over people in need or people that they want to help. And it is so obvious to me that those two impactors in your life have melted and it's coming right out of you. It's, it's so fascinating because your dad's not in the financial world. Your dad's a doctor. Mm. But how you chose to attack your business model is how he goes in to each particular patient. And I just that just so helps me understand the role that parents play. And of course, now you're, you're a father and you, and you know the power of what it is. And obviously your, 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 your son's very young, but nevertheless, it is the greatest and most prideful thing in your life. I got two. It's the greatest thing. When you think about the dad part of you now, where do you see your, your life channeling itself in the future as it pertains to your family and and your son? When I look at my parents going back to that flexibility that they had, they used it to be there for all of my stuff Mm -hmm. and my sister's stuff. When I look at my son and I think of the things that are important to me, family has always been important to me. Mm -hmm. Now being a father, I look at him and, and I I don't want to miss any of the moments, you know, It, it, it bothers me if he does something that he's never done before and I'm not there. Or mm-hmm. He says something that he's never said before and I'm not there. He's at three, so his language is expanding and things like that. I just, I love being there for all the moments. And that's how, not just my parents, that's how my extended family is. You know, I, I'm as close or closer with my aunts and uncles and cousins than most people are with their parents and siblings. We're just mm-hmm. a really close-knit group. And as I build for the future... I ref- there are some things I refuse to do. I refuse to build my practice in a way that robs me of my time with my family. Yeah. So there, there are definitely times where I could make a little more money if I was going to work into the night, but then I wouldn't get to put them to bed. Yeah. And that's our time. Mm-hmm. And that's a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. That's Well, that's exactly what it takes to be a whole individual. You can't, you can't be all one side. You can't be all the other. You got to have a balanced approach. And that, that could probably lends into what it, exactly what you're doing in the first place, which is balancing all the, all the things that we have going on in life. Yeah, there's – so our, our CEO, when I came into the industry, it was much more sales-oriented, similar to old-school real estate agents where you have that ring the bell when you make a sale and – you are competing, quote unquote, competing against the advisor next to you or in our industry, the advisor across the country. You get all these sales bonuses and performance incentives and things of that nature. And there was a, a time later in the year when I was talking to our CEO who came up, he was raised professionally in that model. And he was talking about needing to hit it hard through the end of the year and just, you know, you never know who's working when you're not working. And it, definitely a part of that is true. When we got to the end of the conversation, I told him, I said, you know, the, this person that I'm competing against, I don't know him. 
I've never seen them. I don't have any interaction with them. But more importantly, we're not fighting for one dollar. Like we're each earning money in different households. And I'm not sitting there saying, oh, man, I can't believe they earn more than me. If I get to the end of the year and it's Christmas time and my family's in town and I am this close to being the top whatever in in our industry, if I just bid into some of that time that I could be spending with my family who's in town, I'm going home 10 times out of 10. Yeah. And to me, that helps keep me grounded and it helps structure the way I work because I I still work hard. I still work long hours. But I'm going to do it so that it's not at the expense of the things that are more important. Because that's, I mean, I'm making that money so I can go and spend it with them. And Correct. if I die at the office, I definitely am not going to get to spend that money then. So I'm, I'm going home. 100%. You know, it's interesting. Right now, Nashville, if it's not the hottest city in the planet, it's the second hottest city in the planet. And in some ways, it has, it's interesting. There's so much wealth moving into Nashville from New York and California and Chicago. There is the, the pricing of housing is literally astronomical. It's, uh, it blows my mind. And right now I would almost say we're in a, a housing crisis mm-hmm. in Davidson and Williamson County and maybe even closer to Mount Juliet too. I can't speak for Hendersonville, but I would imagine it's pretty hot in Hendersonville as well. But the, the real co- issue is, is like, how do we handle all of this in an enormous amount of wealth coming in from New York and California and it not have a negative impact on the already sustained Nashville life. And then it's getting pushed out. And I don't know how that affects you directly or indirectly, but I'm interested as, and from the, from the helicopter view of the financial world and where our, the economy appears to be going on top of in the United States mm-hmm. on top of, the Nashville market, which is red hotter than the United States market. How are you kind of navigating it? And what do you see as important to you and important to Nashville in the next 10 years that we better pay attention to? We're in big trouble. Locally, Nashville has to make sure that there's a pipeline for someone to be born in Davidson County, educated in public schools in Davidson County and then earn a job that pays enough to live in Davidson County with a Nashville address. Yeah. I don't think that pipeline exists right now on a large scale. If you grow up in Nashville and go to one of the local schools, by the time you reach the point where you've graduated from whatever college you've attended, the pricing's already gone up to a point where the only people who can afford it are Uh, you know, people from LA or Chicago or Seattle or wherever they're coming from. And to me, that discourages people from staying. Yeah. So you're going to, you're going to end up with the city of a bunch of people who grow up here and move somewhere else. Most of the people who I grew up with in town, they leave, or if they wanted to stay, they can't afford to live in the city. Yeah. We were very fortunate in that we bought in town right before things just exploded. Yeah. But I even look now at the amount of space that we have and and would want in a home that we're not going to have to leave and say, man, where, where would we live if we hadn't purchased in 2012? And it, it's discouraging to think about. Yeah. So I don't know if the answer to that is 
you know, you, you find other uh, communities that make sure that the only people who can purchase this particular house would be a policeman or an educator or I don't know what's possible from a legislative standpoint, but I don't think that there's a solution to it that doesn't involve policy and income creation. Yeah. And when you look at somebody in that situation who's trying to find a house in Nashville, some of them aren't even close. And that's discouraging to say. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're meeting people when I, you know, I'm talking to potential clients and they're trying to say, hey, I want a house of X square feet in Nashville. And, and you have to tell them you're probably fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year off in income before you'd be able to afford that. And the only solution that they have control of in that is is radically increasing their income. Yeah, because they can't get more time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of humbling. You know, at, at first when you look at it, just like at you, like we par purchased our home in 2015. So just, you know, six years ago. It's almost doubled in value in six years. So that's not, I mean, even though that's great, you know, it's, uh, it's great in some levels. It's not healthy. That's almost unsustainable growth. Mm-hmm. But then if we sell the house, where do you go? Where in the world are you going? Mm -hmm. And that's not easy to, just like you, like, I just like kind of sit back and think about this recently. I'm like, well, I got all this, now I got all this money sitting here that I'm sitting on. But even if I wanted to use it, there's really not anything to use it for. <laughs> right. And it might not be enough to have the, something even similar where I want to be. That is, that's eye-opening. You see that across not just housing, but really, the, I think the pandemic brought a light to all of that. Mm -hmm. If I had a client who was well off before the pandemic, they were even better off after the pandemic. If I had a client who was struggling at the start of the pandemic, they're struggling even more at the wow. end of the pandemic. It was just such a rapid acceleration of income inequality, you know, asset inequality. And... It, I, it's not going to slow down and it's not going to get better. Mm -hmm. So you look and you say, are we really going to have such an extreme divide of who can afford a, just a home in town? Not even saying like, oh, I have a home that has equity and the payment's reasonable. Like, no, literally, do you even meet the minimum barrier to entry of owning a home in town? And that's not good for the health of a city if an educator uh, can't afford to live in the city. Yeah. You know, if I if I work at Hillsborough High School as a teacher and there's no way in the world that I can afford a home within five, ten minutes of where I work, people are gonna stop moving here. Yeah. That's a big problem. And people aren't right now the the that part of the business are they're shooting fish in a barrel, so they're loving they're loving the income mm -hmm. that's rolling in. But I don't think that many people are looking far enough in the in the in the future to see that it could do a radical 360 on them. And that's what I'm seeing. Like, I'm seeing, like, I'm, I'm excited about the growth. But I almost feel like it's happening too fast. It's almost you know, raging out of control because we had so many great things going on. Mm -hmm. But, whew, and then I didn't even really didn't give the pandemic the credit that it deserved because it has definitely shifted the income even further apart. Whether that was an intentional situation or not will be will be left to be figured out for other people. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that is that's another scary part is that capitalism has its ups and its downs, and the desire to go get it, go eat what you kill, 
works for some people mm-hmm. like you and does for me and your parents and many others. But there's another faction of people either because they, they didn't have the, the guidance from a parent or mentorship from of a friend or a mentor or any belief that that's possible in some ways, that's another limiting device mm-hmm. is that you don't have any, anybody to show you what's possible. What do you think, like to me, like the public education system is an embarrassment for our country, not just Nashville, mm-hmm. but it's an embarrassment for our country. And you went to one of the greatest schools in the country at Montgomery Bell Academy. And I'm working at something that would be eerily similar uh, as it pertains to the quality of education, but it's private education. Mm-hmm. You're paying on top of what you should already be getting. And I just always sit back and wonder, like, all the money that's being spent for all these private institutions, why couldn't they be put together to make the public institutions every bit as good? And others, such a, that then, I would imagine, there would have to be such a surplus of money being put into the education system mm-hmm. that it's a victory. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel on our on our public education system no unfortunately i think you put money towards what you value and i think that there are going to be well-meaning people who still won't do it and i think there are going to be people who will find reasons to to not do it that hide their biases Mm -hmm. so i can look around town and identify a number of schools who would prefer that that not change um won't name them of course (laughs) but you know or a number of parents who aren't necessarily trying to have their kids in that melting pot of an environment you know i was born into an extremely fortunate situation just in many areas and and was raised along people who weren't and there's just so many things that i had the ability to do that other people did not and i can see yeah, I have hopefully a lot of time to live, but even mm-hmm. at my age, I can see what a difference it makes, just opportunity. And I don't think there's a lot of impetus to change the way it is now. Because then, if there's, even though I feel there are limitless ways to earn money and limitless jobs available and jobs that can be created, but that's not everybody's mindset. Yeah. You, you make. some things more equitable and some people will think well now that's one job that i won't get um or more competition for that job that i want yeah so i don't i don't have a lot of positive you know hopes for for that (laughs) and that's a shame because in all actuality i don't think our i don't want to say our country because i don't i don't know if it's just the country if it's just the the people in power, but you would like to think that the education of, of America's youth has, to, if it's not number one, how in the world is it not in the top three things, but it, by teacher pay, by school funds, it seems like it has to be somewhere around 914 in the priority pile. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like it's so, it's so convoluted and jacked up that you're, it, it doesn't seem like there's any hope, but I just feel like there's, at some point, it's push is going to come to shove and it's going to become an imperative situation. It just has hit rock bottom, and it's hard to believe that we're not at rock bottom yet. I don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. I hope you're right. If there's anything that showed the value of a teacher, it was the pandemic. Regardless of what you thought they should have made before, 
when you had to entertain your kids all day and make sure that they weren't just sitting in front of a TV all day and were actually learning something? You know, how much do you think that teacher should make now? Yeah. Uh, but are you willing to pay more property taxes to do that? <laughs> you know, are you willing to have a house that's a little smaller or a lawn that's not as big in order to to live in a place where you can afford to do those types of things from a budgetary perspective? And that's not even an indictment. There's some things that I don't want to do. You know, yeah. like if I would do it if I had to. But if you came and told me, hey, we're going to inch your lawn in a little closer, I'd be like, Ugh, I don't know. So <laughs> it, it, it requires sacrifice. Yeah. And, and I, we'll see if people are willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah, and it almost seems kind of bizarre. You, you mentioned a great word there, sacrifice. That means that the people would be sacrificing for the desires of the government. <laughs> and we don't, I don't really see that happening. Yeah. <laughs> just, just no question about that. Well, one of the things that I, I think relates between what I do for a living, which is coach golf or interview people and sh to share their wisdom or write books or whatever, is that there's a process that it takes. And Nick Saban says it takes what it takes to get to the top. There's no shortcuts. There's only a handful of ways you can get to the top. And so to me, I talk all day long until I'm blue in the face about the process of what it takes to be great at, in this particular world, golf. But your situation, your deal is that you talk about you're trying to connect the dots between your financial goals and the steps you need to take to get there in a glossary 10,000 foot view, what does that mean to you? And what could you share to my listeners about the process that many of them are wondering, how can I be better? The first part of connecting the dots between the type of person you are and what it will take to be successful financially is understanding what type of person you are. Yeah. You find, especially here, we're in the Dave Ramsey heartland and, you know, oh, I got to be a budgeter. I got to sit down every Sunday and go over every penny that I spent or I have to do it this way. I have to do it that way. And there are so many people who are trying to build their finances in a way that just completely go against the type of person they are. If I'm not a detail oriented person, then why am I going to set myself up to fail repeatedly by saying, I'm going to sit down every Sunday and go over all these things. Um, if I'm an entrepreneurial person and I know that it would kill me to have to wait for 30, 40 years to start to see the fruits of some of the money that I'm putting aside, then why am I going down a career path where that's really the only way to mm -hmm. do it? Conversely, if I'm the type of person who is terrified by taking risks and not knowing exactly how I'm going to be paid on a biweekly basis, then why are you an entrepreneur? <laughs> you know, yeah, like the, first, the first part of it is, is truly understanding who you are and how you want to build wealth. And then once you have that understanding, you come to grips with whatever the pros and cons are of that choice. If you're going to be an entrepreneur then there are going to be some times where some people who have PTO and things that you don't have and employee benefits are just living a different life than you are. You know, mm -hmm. like it's just going to, that's the fact of what it is. And there's also going to be some things where if you're working a nine to five, which I'm not one of those entrepreneurs who demonizes a nine to five, then 
it's going to be a slow build of wealth and 401k matches and, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I meet with a client, I, I ask them all the time, how do you, what does the future look like for you? How do you want to build wealth? And if they're in line with what they're doing right now, okay, well, then I'm going to support that objective. If I see somebody who's just radically off base, then I'm going to tell them, you know, that at some point in time, the rubber's going to meet the road and you're going to get frustrated with this or you're going to stop working towards this because it's antithetical to who you are. Mm -hmm. So I think people should know how they want to build for the future. They should look at what they have in front of them and see, does it line up? And I'd rather them do a radical reboot if it doesn't match than work all of their lives in, in a situation that just doesn't match who they are. Yeah, so true. So true. Well, if there's one thing I know for sure, especially after listening to your dad talk about your golf <clears throat> and how disgusted he is that you just keep on not playing for X amount of days, months, weeks, have you? And then you step up and just rifle one like 50 by him. It kind of ruffles his feathers. I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, his ball goes straight. So <laughs> <laughs> mine might be 50 yards farther, but it's, you know, it's a little dangerous more territory. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about how golf has played a role in your business life after college, how much does the game matter to you? And what do you feel like the benefits or the non-benefits are of golf and business as it pertains to being a financial advisor? It's a way to build relationships that's less mechanical. Mm -hmm. How do you, when you're in college, it's very easy to, build friendships in college <laughs> you yeah. know like we got a ton of free time very little responsibility you know what do you like oh i like that too and we're gonna have two hours until our next class let's be friends you know yeah. it's, it's a lot easier when you're grown and have stuff to do and bills to pay and mouths to feed your opportunities to to build relationships are to me very mechanical i'm not a happy hour type guy uh, I'm not a networking event type guy. That's just, that's not my comfort level. Mm -hmm. So to be able to go out and golf and sprinkle in some, you know, business conversation, but really just get to know the person. And I don't really keep my phone on me while I play or anything like yeah. that. It's just a, a, a way to disconnect and, and build in a unique way. Yeah. Um, I wish I made time to play more. Mm -hmm. I've always kind of been in the position where I'm like, as long as I'm good enough to get in a scramble and, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, then that's kind of where I am in terms of free time with golf. But man, when I get to play more than I usually do, it's just such a good mix of getting out of routine and spending time with people. Yeah. It's like, there aren't many things left in life where you get to spend four or four and a half hours with somebody doing something everybody's looking forward to doing. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't think golf's ever going to die. It goes through difficult moments, certainly due to whether it's economic or time or what have you. But at the end of the day, golf creates an environment where you get to spend four or five hours in a massive interview process while not being interviewed. Mm -hmm. You get a chance to see, is this person, does he like to cheat a little bit? Yeah. Does this person, <laughs> what's this guy's integrity like? When it's going bad, what's his attitude like? How's he, how's he handle negative uh, outcomes? How does he handle his positive outcomes. You know, all you get a chance to watch, it's like a four and a half hour human behavior study with golf clubs. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that. There's a, last year, 
and I ask everybody this question now, but I think it's very relevant to how you observe people with golf. Last year we were having dinner with friends and I asked them, if you met a person and you could only ask them one question and based on their answer to that question, you had to make a lifelong decision of whether you're going to be friends with that person or not. What would you ask them? Like what's important to you to hear from that person and once you hear it, you know, okay, we're going to be okay. Golf is like that to me. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not a, you know, you do a lot of, you play with a lot of people who do like pissing contests. And I don't mind, you know, hey, let's put $5 on this. five. But we, people who talk too much trash or just, you know, trying to embarrass somebody on the course or are playing with somebody who's not good mm-hmm. and they have an attitude that they're slowing down their pace of play a little bit. You get to see so much. And you get to the end of 18 holes sometimes, and you're like, I never want to see this person again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's exactly um, right. And if you think about how many other ways can you find that out in two to four hours, there's not many. There are. That's exactly <laughs> right. <know? laughs> That's so true. And it's it's always it, it, it almost always shows up with an exclamation point. It's either this guy or girl is awesome mm-hmm. or I think I got to get going. Oh, I thought you want to finish the round. No, I can't. Yeah. Gonna have to get all the putts are gimmies. Thirty <laughs> feet away. You got that you one. Pick man. that up, man. <laughs> oh, it's such a fascinating sport. Uh, and also, you, you played a lot of basketball when you were growing up, mm-hmm. and I love basketball. What does basketball mean to you? And especially when you think back to your days of playing when you were young. When I was growing up. Um, we had a huge community of kids who played mm-hmm. and and played well. Yeah. Um, when I was, you know, fourth, fifth grade, um, you know, I was playing with some people who were very talented and sixth, seventh grade playing with people who were very talented and, you know, you can keep up, but it wasn't like at that age I was, one of the better ones. I mean, I was probably one of the better ones, but to me, in, in yeah. terms of my standards for myself, I want to be the best, yeah. you know? And there were people ahead of me who I just couldn't seem to to break through. And I remember I played for this team at the, the downtown Y, and my coach there was real hard-nosed guy, nice guy, but hard-nosed guy. And I would just be frustrated that I wasn't getting shots or I wasn't getting an amount of playing time. And you mentioned it earlier with the story about Kobe. He said, you know, uh, there's this guy, his name was Brainard. And this this sounds insane, but when we were in the YMCA league, they had nine feet, nine foot goals. And when you're up to a certain age mm-hmm. and we were 11, 12 years old and this kid was dunking on these nine foot rims and he was not that tall, just an incredible athlete. And he was the star of the team mm-hmm. talking to the coach. I'd be frustrated, not because he's the star, but because I want to be the star. You know, like, sure. I don't hate him. I just want, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the coach was saying, you know, you are in control of the work that you put in while he's not working. And it can't be, I come to practice, he stayed for an hour after. Like you talked about with Kobe, that person wasn't staying after. Mm-hmm. Bernard worked very hard, and I worked very hard. But there was a difference between us working hard for the same amount of hours 
and me putting in just a little bit more to per, to perfect that skill that he wasn't working on or mm-hmm. that the team needed that was going to put me in a better position yeah. to play. And that really meant a lot to me, not just in terms of the amount of time, but what I was working on during that time. I am very intentional about the type of practice and work that I do in all areas. And a lot of that started with basketball. When I was looking at Braynard, I think I knew even then, like, well, I can't dunk on that nine-foot goal. So if he's going to be the scorer, I'm going to be the best passer on this team. And if nothing else, I'm going to pass it to him. Mm -hmm. So when I was practicing, I was practicing my handle. I was practicing passing. I was looking at the thing that the team needed, Mm -hmm. and I was going to provide that thing. And if if you followed me as I played – and I played all over the place, uh, you know, AAU, different travel teams. Depending on the team I was on, my role on that team was completely different. I was not someone who was unable to adjust. I've been on teams where they would give me the ball and get out of the way because mm-hmm. I'm the best scorer on this team and we're going to win by you getting out the way. And I've been on teams where if I shot three times a game, that was a good game because mm-hmm. that just wasn't what was needed. But I knew what was going to get me on the floor. And that has really translated to my business life, even in terms of choosing who I target. Yeah. Because to me, had I gone in and not had that mindset and said, I don't care what Nashville needs in a financial advisor, I'm going to do what all these other people are doing. I wouldn't have found a way to, to rise above in terms of recognition. No Role understanding and being able to accept your role mm-hmm. is a very difficult thing when you have talent. So to me, like when I was when I listened to that story, it reminds me of Magic Johnson. What makes Magic Johnson so great was the fact that if Magic Johnson needed to be the scorer, he'd score forty two. If Magic Johnson needed to rebound because Kareem was injured or Kurt Rambis was injured, well, the Magic Johnson got seventeen rebounds. Mm-hmm. And if they needed Magic Johnson to distribute the ball to the awesome teammates that they had when when he was at the Lakers, well, then he had 17 assists. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while, he'd have 42.17 rebounds and 17 assists because he just wanted you you to know that Magic was in the house. Um, That is how I've always tried to be in my media life. If I needed to be the guy who gave the content... I could be the guy who gave the content. If I needed to be the interviewer, I wanted to be the interviewer. And if I had to tag team along with another analyst or an expert in the field, I was more than happy to take half the jump shots. Mm-hmm. So I always said, like, I always felt like I wanted to be magic. I needed to know what my role was today, and I was going to be gladfully the best teammate that I could be. And I think that that's that's missing in a lot of ways in the world today, mm-hmm. but it just struck a chord with me. Like we listened to you tell me that story just kind of made me think of magic Johnson because that's what magic did. Magic was whatever he needed to be. Absolutely. You know, you, for me at that age, when I started learning that lesson, it's like, okay, do you want to sit on the bench trying to be Braidenhart for the whole season and never get in? Or do you want to play? Yeah. And if I wanted to play, here's what the team needed. And, you're going to have all types of decisions like that in life. Like, all right, do you want to keep running your head into this wall knowing it's not going to work but because you want it? 
Or do you want to adjust? Do you want to realize, hey, there's actually a little gap in this wall if you just turn left? <laughs> you know, like, but you got to be willing to, to, to look around and, and turn left. And that goes back to what I was saying, even with clients, where, you know, the, the, I tell people that I work with all the time, my job is to give you informed opinions. It's not to agree with you. You know, like mm-hmm. there will be times we agree. But my job is not to agree with you. And I'll get to a place where a client's running into a wall and they want me to confirm their incorrect action. I'm like, what do you want me to say? You know, that you're running into the wall. There's a hole to the left. <laughs> Just look to the left. <laughs> so true. Very important uh, visuals there because so many people, when they, when they become successful at anything, even for a short amount of time, they generally get really get their blinders on as if this is the only way to the top Mm -hmm. because I had some immediate success. But adaptability is a great talent to have because if you can recognize things are going to happen before they happen and you can make a little move to the right or a little move to the left so that you're still kind of doing what you're doing, but you've moved past a problem that was about ready to land on you. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. That's a big deal for sure. Yeah. And a lot of that is, is being self-aware realizing how you got to the point where you've come to uh, a good friend of mine when it when he talks about how he evaluates risk you know he's has a high tolerance for it and he says you know if 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 you took away everything that i have right now i should be able to rebuild it in half the time it took me because i was paying attention mm-hmm. and that means to, he's self-aware right like he's not going to get blinders on he's always looking and saying like all right if a barrier comes up i remember every step i took to get to this point where the barrier is and i'm going to make those adjustments i've been paying attention Mm -hmm. warren buffett uh recently made a statement i don't know how recent i just saw it it could have been 20 years ago because he's that old and that successful but he said if if we made it so that every single person in the united states made fifty thousand dollars a year that he thought within two to three years, all the people that have all the money right now would have all the money again, and all the people that didn't have money wouldn't have money mm. any again. And everything would, in between two and three years, it would already be back to where it was before. Mm-hmm. When you hear that statement, how true does that sound to you? And what, that's an indictment on the system if it's true. I think that that's easy for Warren Buffett to say since he's already in that group. (laughs) Um, So true. You know, there are, what I would say is there are people who will attain the knowledge in that period of time faster than some others. I won't say that they would be in the same position monetarily because that strips away all types of horrific things that have been done to people in terms of stripping wealth from them and and policies that benefit the wealthy. But there is something to the fact, knowing Warren Buffett's schedule, that Warren Buffett gets up every day and he reads the newspaper. He reads. He observes. He gathers information. He continuously is trying to get better. And some part of finances is luck and favor and policy and things like that. But there is a tremendous amount of finance that is knowing how to make money. Yeah. And I do agree there is something to the fact that there are people out there who will just not sit in the state in which they are. They're going to keep making themselves better. Mm-hmm. And I do think quickly those can, can be separating factors. Yeah, that's an interesting point. 
Well, what appears to be the most important part of my podcast, as it basically pertains to the account, the conversations that I get through social media from the people that interact with the podcast, is the piece on perseverance. And, and to me, this is everybody's struggling at some point. What is that one thing that you faced in your life that you weren't quite sure you were going to make it through? It was really trying and challenging. But you, 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 while walking through hell, you kept walking, and you came out the other side. And now you realize that life struggles part of life and that you can navigate it to the best of your ability and come out the other side. What was that one piece that you were kind of scared that you were going to make it through and then you did? I've, I've been very fortunate in the fact that because of parents and favor and not, you know, I didn't grow up in some, you know, disadvantaged situation. I was very blessed in that regard. There hasn't been many things where it's like, man, the stakes here are just, life altering haven't had any major health concerns so i've been fortunate i do think that as a credit to some of the things that my parents did for me i was constantly put in situations where the end objective was a really mountainous task to overcome mm. uh, when i went so you mentioned that i uh, went to montgomery bell the schools that I went to before then, the workload was, I mean, it was nothing compared to what I encountered there mm -hmm. in terms of time management. When I got to college and I'm trying to say, hey, I'm trying to build a path that doesn't seem to be available at this college. When I got to financial services and I realized, hey, I'm starting from zero, no base, no supplement no assistance and trying to build something that's consistent and recurring and fulfilling all of those things are things that you can't do in a day you can't even do it in a year mm -hmm. in some cases you can't do it in five years and th the the part of it that built perseverance in me is you don't even get the benefit in some of those areas of knowing whether you're on the right track until after the progress has been made. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I could be spending two hours working on something right now that I think is beneficial to me in school or in my practice. And I could do that over and over and over. I could spend two hours a week or 60-hour work weeks for two or three years. And it may not be until five years later that I start to realize, hey, that stuff that I was working on back then, like, that worked. And when you're looking back on it, it's like, man, I'm so glad I did that. But the only thing while you're doing the work that keeps you going is the perseverance. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's very easy to keep working if you're getting that positive reaction while you're working. If the first time that I ever, you know, shot a jump shot, I missed. And then the second time that I shot it, I made it. And I never missed again. That's not perseverance. Like if I just, I was in the gym for three hours. Well, you only missed one shot. Like I'd be in this, that's some pretty positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. But it's a completely different ball game if you're trying to change your form or if you're trying to make your practice more efficient. And you're sitting there and saying like, it's not going to get better. Matter of fact, it may get worse. And it may be worse for two, three, four, five, ten years before I can sit back and 
really evaluate whether that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's keeping me doing it is perseverance. Very true. That's a really important thing for people to hear because sometimes you don't even realize what you're persevering through Mm because it's it's like a subtle drip of struggle, not a a blowing faucet of struggle. It just drips on you a little bit at a time. And the uncertainty of whether you're doing something that's going to be productive or not productive that's another thing that weighs on you when you have that mentality of the perseverance piece is that you're also not quite sure it's going to work. So you, oh, have, yeah. to, you have to do your due diligence to make sure that you've done everything you can to be sure. Yeah. I mean, look but, at, so look at the life that you have right now. Can you definitively say that 20 years ago you knew that it would work out in this way? No chance. So to me, that means that for countless hours, countless connections that you've made, tournaments that you've gone to, players that you've helped play, you're really just sitting there and believing in the principle of if I'm working in the right way, it's going to turn out positively. Yeah. But to not be able to look at a particular person or example to know that, that's you know that that's that's tough yeah and it takes perseverance like mm-hmm. i said it's if you know, i talked about the jump shots but even if i you know if you grow up and you say oh well i'm following every single step that this person followed and it worked out for them if you don't have that the only thing that keeps you working is perseverance and that's belief right. very true well the second half of the show are the things that you do to recharge your batteries because everything that you do professionally is a drain you're doing the best that you can to provide And generally speaking, those are things that bring a lot of like-minded people together to do things. And bringing that amount of people together has an exponential value that fills your cup up, Mm -hmm. which is why concerts, plays, football games, basketball games, etc. Those things are very popular when it comes to the weekends and things to get to recharge the batteries because it brings a whole lot of like-mindedness and that energy fills you up. When you were growing up, who was your favorite musical artist? Uh, well, the the one that probably people would know would be Jay-Z. Yeah. Um, other than the that, blueprint? probably some... I love... I mean, all his albums. Reason, from Reasonable Doubt on, I had a car in high school that had a 12-disc changer. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, however many CDs he had at the time... Well, they were in that. <laughs> that's, that's how many were in the, in the player. I will just play it straight through. Uh, other than that, probably like some obscure Memphis rapper when I was growing up, really you know, three, six mafia was huge oh, yeah, and all that. Are. And, um, so yeah, that, that was, you know, in terms of high school years, probably that when I was even younger than that, I grew up in a household that plays a ton of gospel music. I know that's a very odd departure from three, six mafia, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, when balance, you're, man, yeah. we're looking for some balance <laughs> exactly. when you're riding in the car with your mom and she has gospel music on all the time. That was the thing that I listened to the most consistently. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know, my mother has three other siblings, all of them sing. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, we spent tremendous amounts of time with all of them. Like I said, we have a really big extended family. Mm-hmm. So you're going from car to car and you're listening to the same gospel artist the entire time. So that was a huge part of my childhood. Yeah. Jay-Z is interesting. I've had probably, of all the rappers that have been, he's the number one most 
named favorite rapper or favorite artist mm-hmm. of the people that I've interviewed, and I think that you're now 101, uh, which is interesting to me because I love rap music, but Jay Z's never been one that really that really resonated with me. And I, it always before like because I remember I did one with our baseball coach here, Jason Maxwell, played for the Cubs, mm-hmm. and he could sit here, he could literally go on any lyric he could just take any song give him the beat and he could give jay-z's he could give his best jay-z version and i'm like wow so it makes the world go around as everybody loves a little something different did you immediately resonate with with jay-z or what was it about jay-z's music that really hit home with you he's one of those guys there's athletes musicians when you ask people who's your favorite a lot of that is aspirational oh, yeah, who do point. i want to be like and he's one of those guys who it seems like he never loses just this seems like he never loses mm-hmm. so when you look at the confidence that he displays the moves that he makes and then the fact that he's going to get on a track and then talk about it and 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 it's verifiable <laughs> you know right. there's a lot of people who say things in any form of music even a you know Country music artist gets on there and talks about all the women that they get. It's like, well, really? Let me, let me see. You <laughs> let me know? check that out. And I think that there's just something to the fact of I'm listening to a person who said they would do it, did it, came and told me about it, and had the swagger to stand on it. That yeah. I just think is really cool. <laughs> that, that's interesting. I never really thought of it in that way. I might have to get back into the blueprint. I've listened to the blueprint a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the one that I listen to the most. But it's kind of like that was the blueprint. Yeah. <laughs> he sang about it, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I follow him. I just haven't really listened to his music that much. Well, that's pretty interesting. Favorite athlete when you were growing up? Steve McNair. Steve McNair. Mm-hmm. The great Steve McNair. It's interesting. I was, when I had the opportunity to interview Eddie George, we talked about Steve. And I just like, to me, I'm like, dude, that guy, you almost couldn't make him not get on the field. Mm-hmm. And bruised sternum, dislocated shoulder. Yeah. I read the headlines McNair scores touchdown on the last second with a bruised sternum and a dislocated shoulder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the mentality that he had as a player. Well, it's also kind of resonated with the entire city. He and Eddie George and Wycheck and Javon Kirst, they all had this blue collar, uh, you can't take us out, and no amount of, no amount of pain is going to get us off this field. McNair was awesome and is certainly an iconic figure in this town. Would you, did you follow him before he came to, tennis, to the Titans, or was it just when he came to the Titans? Uh, I followed him before in the sense that Having gone to an HBCU, you knew that he went to a historically black college as well. Mm -hmm. And there are, so my, I went to Oakwood. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandfather went to Tennessee State. Um, So he used to take us to games and Mm -hmm. in the hole for football games or go watch basketball games. And you'd see these incredible athletes. And many of them would not go that next step of, I went to HBCU, then I went to the NFL or the NBA. So, again, wanting to to see someone who kind of reflects your experience. Steve McNair was one of those guys who was like, hey, he went to McNeese State. And he's, you know, starting for the Oilers at the time. So I kept up with him in in that regard. But it wasn't until he came here and is playing with the, you know, busted hip and all those different types of things, which to me gives you a completely skewed perception of when people should play and when people shouldn't. Like a true Titans fan, we just have a 
bonkers opinion of when people should play, partly because of McNair and Eddie George. That's like, exactly right. Somebody has a broken leg. Well, Steve would have played. I don't know what this guy's doing sitting on the bench. Uh, when he came to Nashville, you know, it was definitely the next level of he represented to me what the entire town was at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, a lot of not flashy. Nashville wasn't flashy at that time. That's you right. Know? Not a lot of flash. We're just here. We get the work done. You know, we're not knocking you over the first time you come across this line, but it's going to hurt. All four the, quarters are going to hurt. Yeah, by the end of that fourth quarter, you're going to wish that we weren't here. <laughs> you know? That's exactly right. <laughs> it's interesting, like right now, the historically black colleges are starting to get head coaches of massive acclaim mm-hmm. with Jackson State having Deion Sanders and now Tennessee State having Eddie George. Mm-hmm. How important is that to – would you say, because you may or may not know, how important is that to the historically black colleges to have these Hall of Famers come lead their programs and help certainly help these great athletes have a maybe have a little more confidence to take it to the next level? It's great, not just for the athletes, but for people who are not familiar with HBCUs. And that's not just white people or not black people. There's like There are black people who from a familiar perspective, don't have the same lineage that mm-hmm. I do, yeah. uh, HBCU. The thing that's beautiful about any HBCU for a black and brown child is you have four years or five, however long you're there, where you have just a completely safe space to be black. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a minor thing, but it's really not regardless of the environment that you have in terms of if you live in a black neighborhood, if you're a black child that lives in a white neighborhood or a Latino neighborhood, everybody has their stuff, but like we're going to, as black people going to have either just aggressions or microaggressions that over the course of time can really beat up on you. And Mm -hmm. it can, it can cheapen some of your self worth and your self identity as a black person. When you go to an HBCU and you have this place where you have this safe space where you are, you're, you're isolated from that in a sense, and you can enjoy community, you can embrace community, you can have a place where nobody's telling you that what you're doing is not the norm or it is not the way that it should be done. Well, if you came up in that, you recognize the power of it. But if you didn't, and you can see what it has done for others through Deion Sanders shining a light on it through Eddie George shining a light on it. Well, there may be a black or brown kid who wants that experience, who was not aware of how powerful it was or that it existed, who now has a little more interest in going to Florida A&M or Jackson State or Howard or Hampton. And then there are going to be people who are not black who look and they do respect the fact that they're athletes now because they're looking and saying, okay, we can watch this game. These guys are pretty good. But even in terms of just the school itself, to be able to see that these people exist, they are competent, they are skilled, uh, is powerful. You Mm -hmm. know, I've been in, in rooms where people have disparaged the talent that comes from historically black colleges whether it be professional, athletic, so on and so forth. Hmm. So the more people that you have in those rooms when stuff like that is said to be like, well, I'm here and I damn sure am qualified to be here. That helps, period. Yeah. It's interesting. I would love for you to elaborate a little bit more because I'm very fascinated with this. 
um, the importance of going to historically black college mm -hmm. for you and the importance of being in a community where you don't feel like you have to be judged mm -hmm. for not fitting in. Obviously, I can't relate to that, but I'm unbelievably empathetic and sympathetic toward the situation. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to your dad a lot about his experience, but I never really thought of it in the terms, because I never heard him say it the way you just said it, but it really impacted me. How important was that in your form, those, the last part of your developmental formative years, 18 to 22, mm -hmm. 23, where you could, as a, as a black man, go to a place where you could be you always. I guess, that's, I guess that's exactly what I had the opportunity to do. I didn't even think of it in any other way. Yeah. But I guess that's, that's the difference, is that I'm able to do that, and you have to go to a historically black college to do that. Yeah. And it's humbling. Like, for me to sit back and hear that, it's not easy for me to hear, because, I, you know, obviously, I love your mom and your dad, mm -hmm. and I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody who treats me with respect. And I just, I've never really given that any thought, but elaborate more on the importance of it. Because I think that there are a lot of kids that need to understand it more than just the headline or the face value of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the best I can do is probably give you some examples that's all I have, of something that's, that's, if it happens once, it might be small. If it happens your entire life, it's like, man, this is just... It just eats at you. Mm -hmm. um, this actually happened after. Um, <laughs> this happened after I, I left school. But I'd gone to my my brother in law, my wife's uh, husband. He's a singer. Um, has sung all over the world. Was in a group called Naturally Seven, and Naturally Seven used to open for Coldplay. And I'm a big Coldplay fan. Mm -hmm. They were doing a concert in Birmingham at this amphitheater. So a few of my college friends and my sister, uh, they were, I think they were just dating at the time. And then my girlfriend, now wife, we pack up the car, go down to Birmingham, watch this concert, amazing concert, come back to Nashville. And um, we are dropping one of the people in the car with us off at a house that was off of Trinity Lane. And if anybody hears listening this is not from nashville trinity lane is, is changing but historically has been a, a black area mm -hmm. um a lot of police presence on a saturday night on uh, on you know trinity lane so this policeman pulls us over it is probably 1 30 in the morning there's nobody else on the road and he pulled us over and he was clearly just just checking to see what we were doing and he says you know hey you you uh, switch lanes without signaling and I'm like well I, but I didn't switch lanes that was the justification that he came up to the car so he starts asking questions you know why are there so many people in the car I'm like five people it's a five it's a five-seater car <laughs> you know like <laughs> it's, the car's full it's not like we're sitting on top of each other he asked you know like where are you, where are you coming from I said we're coming from a Coldplay concert he's like you think that's funny and I'm like I don't even understand why would I think that's funny he's like you're telling me you guys came from a Coldplay concert and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like, I can't, wow. I, like he thought we were, you know, giving him a hard time and not wanting to tell him where we were. Cause it's like, there's no way that all you black people are going to a Coldplay concert. That's not that big a deal if it happens once. Right. 
But that, but it is something that you remember. Mm-hmm. When you go to, I've gone to places that have dress codes, and they might say you have to wear hard bottom shoes. Uh, you know, the the people who don't look like me might wear a particular brand, whereas the people who I hang out with, we might wear uh, Nikes or Jordans that have a hard bottom or something like that. And then right after you come, they put a rule in the rule book that specifies the brands that you can't wear. Wow. And they all match the ones that you have. That you have. That's that's not that big a deal, but it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, when I was in school, I grew my hair. Um, you grow your hair. Afros were big at the time. Cornrows were big at the time. If I grow my hair, it sticks straight out. If a white person who has curly hair grows their hair, it may be longer than mine when they pull it out. But, you know, it, it falls below their their forehead. Mm-hmm. So you start putting rules in the rule book about how high your hair can be above your head. But no rules about, well, how low can it fall below your face or if you pull uh, it down. Yeah. It's, it's little things like that where there are far more aggressive things that have happened to me over the years. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about microaggressions, where it's like, these are small things if you take them individually, but when they happen collectively, they eat at you. For sure. And if you're not proud of who you are, then you can get to a point where you're like, well, am I wrong? Like, am, am am I supposed to be fitting in am i supposed to just look at what they're doing and and like i said there are far more aggressive things i'm more so trying to give you an example of going to a place where there's not even a possibility that that could happen yeah because everyone there looks like you talks like you was raised in somewhat similar circumstances has the same identity and it's just a place where you can be free from that for however limited a period of time. Wow. It makes the college experience that much sweeter to I say bet. that I had that place. Because when you leave, that place is gone. Yeah. Right? Like the only time you get to go back to it is if you're just visiting, mm-hmm. you know, for a reunion or something. Wow. So for a, for a black child, and it's not the right place for every black child. Sure. But for me, it was a fantastic place to be able to go and and grow into who I was on my own terms without undue influences. Well, thank you for sharing that story because that to me is one of the most important messages that I've been able to share in 101 podcast. (laughs) Thank you for that. I'm sure that in some ways it's not easy to retell that story, but it really means a lot to me. So thank you for doing that. Favorite team, sports team when you were growing up? Titans. Titans. Yeah, absolutely. Favorite game you've ever been to in person, whether it was you know, the best game you've ever been to in person. Sporting event, not necessarily Titans. Man, you know, as a Titans fan, well, I have a best one. As a Titans fan, I only remember the just devastating ones. I was there for the Aldo Greco game. Oh. No, you know, no, have no hold no ill will to him as a human being, but like it was, <laughs> it was horrific to be. Yeah, you know, to that's watch. a tough one to watch. Right um, favorite game was i'm a grizzlies fan as well memphis grizzlies came when i was a kid uh from vancouver and uh kevin durant thunder uh playing us in the playoffs and they had just this epic triple overtime game um in memphis Mm -hmm. and we were there and it was unbelievable just the feeling in the stadium and the the funny thing about it was we had uh it was the middle of the week 
and I could never do this now, just being older and having a child and, uh, and, and that, cause my wife would have been calling me like, where are you? Like, what's going on? But while we left work, a couple friends of mine got in the car, get to Memphis game starts at seven thirty. game should probably end by 10. If it's a regular game, Yeah. triple overtime. So the game doesn't end till 1230 come out. There's a, a wreck. So we didn't get out of Memphis until like 2.30. I mean, the interstate was completely shut down. And if you've ever been to Memphis going to Nashville, there's only one There's only one way. Yeah, so when, <laughs> when 40 shut down, you can't, you can't get there. Yeah. So I got home from that game, I think at 6.30 in the morning, and I had an 8.30 meeting. And, you know... I think I fell asleep for 30 minutes and just said, like, this is going to do me more harm than good. I might as well just get up. So I got up, took a cold shower, and I ended up working that day from, like, 8.30 a.m. to 10 at night. So, like, I'll remember that for the rest of my life because the the sleep that I got that next day <laughs> was just, it was unreal. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was, was that, did they have Harden in, too? Was it Westbrook, Harden, and It was and just Durant and Westbrook at that time. They had traded Harden, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was an epic game. I'm trying to get a hold of the battery that Russell Westbrook has. That guy has a battery and a motor that is it's so frighteningly fun. good. You know, not Damn. that I wouldn't have sent this to friends anyways, but I'm definitely going to send this to a couple friends of mine because I'm a big Russell Westbrook fan. And I think from people who are big on like stats and efficiency, a lot of people hate Russell Westbrook because, you know, he's not the best jump shooter and all those different types of things. I understand that argument. Yeah. So my friends get on me about why I like him so much. And to me, I think there's just something so unique about his ability to just keep coming at you unbelievable you know it's 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 next level and i think that it's we talked about when it's easy to to persevere he's such an example to me of just i'm bringing the same energy whether my team is supposed to win the finals or whether we're going to be the worst team in the league, like you're still getting, you're going to remember this at the end. Oh yeah. And, and <laughs> what you think you see in the first minute of this game is what you're going to taste in minute 40. Oh yeah. Of this game. You know, my, we're, we're, when I was growing up, my dad um, always taught me like, you know, sometimes you have to fight and you're not going to win every fight. Some people may, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it may be a, you know, not a physical fight. It may be a professional fight, a personal fight, but there are going to be times when you have to fight. And it's funny when, when we were coming up, my dad was always of the mindset of like, you may win the fight, but we're both going to be hurting at the end. <laughs> you know, like, and I'm like, I'm, I'm big on that. Like in many things, it's like, what did you bring to the fight? Like, I'm not going to lay down. And that's what I love about Westbrook. He does not lay down. Yeah. You'd think that he gets a moniker of not being a good teammate, but I'd have to think he'd be the greatest teammate. Every When you talk to the people who have played with him, they all love him. It's kind of like Rodman. You know, nobody wanted to play against Rodman, but if he was on your team, mm-hmm. you loved having Rodman on your team. Yeah. The energy bus. Man, yeah. Russell Westbrook is an energy bus. I think I think Trey Young is that way now. Yeah. Not as much in terms of the effort, but a lot of people look at him and they're like, man, this guy's a little jerk. You know what I mean? And I'm like, look at look at the way his teammates respond to him. You know, yeah. Like there's there's something beyond the the media narrative. Mm-hmm. Guy can fill up the bucket, man. Trey yeah. Young can fill it up. Not quite Steph Curry, but he's gaining on it. Mm-hmm. Now Steph Curry, on the other hand, 
can fill up a bucket. I think he's an alien, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, you've <laughs> seen him golf. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that there's something that's not quite right about his hand-eye coordination. <laughs> it's yeah, like, this it's is unbelievable. <laughs> he got some gene that you're not supposed to have. So I'm very fortunate because I'm, I'm very good friends with Drew Maddox, and we, mm-hmm. we've, we do a podcast together based on our books, and I've had him on my on The Verge twice. And he just, he believes wholeheartedly that he's the greatest shooter ever. And he deserves to be on Mount Rushmore of basketball because he changed the game himself. Absolutely. And I never really given the thought that he had changed the game, but he has definitely changed the game. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, you look at what kids are doing now in terms of how they play pick and roll, in terms of how, you know, the, the step back into a three pointer. That was, that was, that's a Steph Curry thing where it's like, I'm, I could take a mid range jump shot right now, but I'm going to, pull back, get behind this three-point line because three is better than two. You yep. know, Shooting a three on a fast break. Some stuff that I'm sure Drew would probably prefer his players not do because <laughs> they're not going to shoot like Steph Curry. Yeah. But in terms of the way that people look at what's a good shot, what's a bad shot, so much of that changed with him. Oh, yeah. Uh, even going back to Davidson when he was in college. Uh, he's a unique guy. Yeah. It's interesting because we talk about it all a lot when, it talks, when, he, when Drew talks about shooting and scoring and the importance of the three-point shot and how it's totally changed mm-hmm. basketball because like when when the three-point shot became what it is the game was still get it into Shaq, Akeem, David Robinson, <laughs> Patrick Ewing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's coming off of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Moses Malone and Robert Parrish. You know, the the it all centered around the big guy. And then literally like in a blink of an eye Shaq was the last big guy. Mhm. Because after that, the big guy was Dirk Nowitzki, and he was shooting threes. Yeah, Kevin Durant, seven-footer. My, I wouldn't want to have to guard that guy. How in the world do you guard Kevin Durant? I don't think that can be done. Um, <laughs> it's when unbelievable. You, when you talk about that, the death of the big man, all that stuff, life lessons. You know, if, if you're a seven-footer now and you want to play like Wilt Chamberlain, you can try. You know, you know, it's not valued anymore. That's right. What are you going to do to adjust? You better be able to do something. Um, the game has just changed too much. I mean, there are players that would have been viable players in the NBA even six years ago who now it's like, what value do you add based on the way we play now? You yeah. pay attention. Because it was like rebounding is no longer rebounding. It's loose balls mm-hmm. because the rebounds is happening 11 feet from the basket. Yeah. Because from where the shots are being taken from. Yeah. I hate to pile on to him because I feel like uh, the, the whole world is, but Ben Simmons, the 76er series, the guy just absolutely cannot shoot, you know? And he can do everything else incredibly well. He can defend, he can pass, he can rebound, all that type of stuff. And you can't play him. Yeah. I mean, it's just that one thing that's missing is so glaring that in my opinion, he shouldn't even have been on the floor. It's unbelievable that a talent like that, but I mean, that's a, that's a game six and seven, that's, those are earmarked in his career forever. I mean, that was a very detrimental two-game stretch I am, for him. I am rooting for him in the sense that I think that the amount of of mental strength he's going to have to have to overcome that is extraordinary. Yeah. So if he does it, I'll be a fan of his for life. He yeah. may not do it. 
to me, if you look at a typical person, no matter what they say, they'd be able to do. Oh, what this guy plays basketball every day. Why can't he shoot? I guarantee you, he can shoot better than any non NBA, non high level college player in practice. Oh yeah, I, I almost guarantee it. Yes, his form is terrible, but a lot of people they have a very skewed perception. I guarantee you, there's probably some scratch golfer at a local, you know, club who sees you or sees somebody that you coach and they're like, Oh yeah, come on, let's go out there. It's, it's different when the lights are on. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, for sure. And I think he has the yips. I don't think he think shoots right. that poorly. I think that he has the yips and if he can overcome that, I'm, I'm there for him. He needs to talk to Tiger Woods. The only person I know of has ever overcome, overcome the yips, man, man. Speaking of that, speak to the, to the greatness of Tiger Woods. I mean, literally, I, I sit back and I said, I tell, I was talking to my boys and my boys only had the opportunity to see one, two awesome victories, the tour championship and then the masters in 19, mm -hmm. because almost all of his victories were done before my kids were born, mm -hmm. like major championships anyway. And I'm like, guys, you have to understand something. If we think about the most incredible victory we've ever seen, it's the 2000 us open when he won by 15. If we think about the greatest victory as it pertains to overcoming adversity, he won a U.S. Open on a broken leg and a torn ACL. <laughs> and every single swing broke it a little more. And when he played on Monday in that playoff, I mean, he literally could barely walk anymore. Mm -hmm. And he won the U.S. Open. And the greatest comeback victory of all time in any sport, I don't care what anybody says, is 2019 Masters. So he has every Base is covered when it comes to victories. He's also, statistically speaking, the greatest there's ever been at basically everything. Do you believe that he's the greatest athlete in any sport of all time? I 100% believe that there has never been a level of dominance like he showed. And the, that my justification for saying that is... I grew up and was introduced to golf with Tiger, which means that until Tiger was no longer, you know, the best, in my mind, the best golfer was in the top three or one every single golf tournament. Because <laughs> that's what I saw. <laughs> you know, it was not until he wasn't the best and you see the next crop of incredible golfers yeah. that you realized, hey, if a if a player's in the top ten, you know, every tournament and wins one of ten tournaments or one of five tournaments, that's incredible. If you look at what Brooks Kepka is doing, where it's almost a guarantee at a major that he's going to be in the mix, that's incredible. That's right. So to take that which is a, a typical level of incredible. And to say that for however many years. Almost 11. 11 years. Tiger was going to win or be in the top three or four. It's, uh, it's that Steve McNair skewed perception of reality. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's, there will never, I don't see, who's the greatest basketball player? I'm not going to. Jordan, LeBron, wh whoever you pick. Mm -hmm. They're not that much more dominant than the rest. Tom Brady's probably the closest. But even that is, how many years has he played and how many yeah. has he won? And how much better is he than Peyton Manning, John Elway? <laughs> exactly. You know, how much better? I mean, some, but, I mean, 
Tiger was markedly better than Phil Mickelson. <laughs> Phil, yeah, 15 strokes, it it doesn't even sound right when you say it. If you golf. And if you don't golf, then you're you're taking for granted that greatness. Yeah. But how many next Tigers, quote unquote next Tigers, have there been? You know? Rory, Jordan, Brooks, DJ. Adam, DJ. Yeah. Uh, all the and they're they're great. Yep. But their level of next tiger is so different. Oh yeah. It's like I look at my, my youngest son I was like, Daddy, who do you think's the next tiger, Rory or Jordan? I'm like, put them both together. <laughs> and then maybe and they'll be Phil. <laughs> that's exactly right. I'm like, like that's the, you know, think about it. Phil winning a PGA championship at fifty one, or just short of fifty one. Probably one of the ten greatest golfers that's ever lived. Mm-hmm. He's never been number one in the world. He's never won the money title. Never won player of the year. Mm. Think about that. Because he was just born at the wrong time. He was born at the wrong time. <laughs> and, and that level of dominance that Tiger brought makes me, it's unbelievable. Like there's two different years in which he was number one in every category except bunker saves. I'm interested to, to hear your take on this. So my sister, um, she is firmly of the opinion that in order to have that level of, of greatness, you have to almost have a social imbalance or be pathological in the sense of the things that matter to a typical human being simply do not matter to this person. Correct. And I, I wonder your take on, like, do you agree to, to be that great and to have that level of laser focus? Yeah. Something has to fall by the wayside. I talk about this a lot with Drew on her book, uh, Elevated, the level of selfishness required to be that elite as an individual flies in the face of all the other things in life that require selflessness. Mm -hmm. So when you become so selfish that the only thing that matters to you is your dreams and your goals, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let me throw that out. At age 25, you still are so young that not many people even realize that you're socially abnormal because mm-hmm. you've just gotten out of school and you're, you're working your craft. And so many people from 23 to 25 who are decided they want to be great at something, they go all in. I'm sure you, in some ways, you went all in, mm-hmm. right? But it's when you get to the superstardom level, and you don't have any selflessness in your training, and you never hear the word no, how quickly can your life be tarnished because there are so many sharks in the water? Mm. You know, and at the end of the day, so many people in individual sports who reach the epic level of super-duper stardom the things that made them great ultimately end up being what brings them down. Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. Tiger Woods. God, when I think of dominance, I mean, I, I, people ask me all the time, if you had to name the four most dominant you've ever seen, I'd have to say that Wilt Chamberlain's in that group because he played in a, in a he played a game that nobody was familiar with. Hmm. If you change the rules because of one guy, you're important, yeah. right? I think Babe Ruth 
who hit more home runs by himself than the rest of Major League Baseball. That's pretty serious. Yeah. And then now you're like, Tiger. And then Mike Tyson. I mean, people literally... Muhammad Ali is probably considered the greatest boxer of all time. And if he's not, maybe Floyd Mayweather. Mm -hmm. Neither of those two guys brought a level of fear. I mean, people... Mike Tyson and Tiger Woods and Wilt Chamberlain and many people, but I think those two... Tyson and Tiger won events before they started. That is power, man. Yeah. That is power. And iconic, and you you saw people who got the tiger yips. You know, I'm three ahead of Tiger on the last day, but I know he's coming. Oh, my. And the fact that I know he's coming, you know, made me flub that last shot. That's right. <laughs> Not because I can't hit it, but because Tiger's coming. That's right. You know. Uh, and you can hear it coming. Yeah. And feel it coming. Oh, man. the You know, if you could see it through the TV screen. Tiger on the last day puts on that red shirt and the way the crowd's following them, that, you know, that silent anticipation. And this absurd, absurd, almost to the point of unbelievable feeling for the moment. Mm. I mean, look, I, was, I told my son the other day, he probably has the 10 greatest shots in the history of the PGA Tour. <laughs> and he also has the 10 worst shots in the history of the PGA Tour. It's a befuddling statistic. I mean, he hit in that stretch where his body was breaking down and he was trying to play through it. We watched the greatest golfer in the world literally not be able to hit a sandwich from 10 yards off the green. Hmm. I'm like, did I just, I think I just saw that, <laughs> didn't I? Did I just see him relegate himself to have to chip with a four iron and he shanked that? I can't, I, please stop. <laughs> please stop, Tiger. Yeah, it, it's definitely painful uh, watching him regress. I think it's painful watching any great regress. Yeah. But that, when when he was on and just with any of the greats like that ability to focus in i think is it's a it's a certain level of unnatural yeah that's right and and obviously he was trained by a a green beret Hmm. so he was trained to be a green beret golfer the mentality of a green beret his level of mental toughness We've never seen anything like that in golf. Yeah. And you factor in that kind of mental toughness on top of radical skill. And now he's conquered the the vast majority of what golf brings. He has the skill to hit all the shots. And then he has an unflappable nature that you literally can't get in his kitchen. Yeah, I agree. Because I don't think there's a shot that he can hit that Phil couldn't hit. And I think Phil is amazing. But again, you're just born at the wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not only that, but the Tiger was so good that he made even Phil Mickelson wonder if he could do it. Yeah. And that's the power of the level of commitment to greatness that is selfish. And it then interferes with your ability to interact with, by and large, a vast majority of society that try to live selflessly hmm. to the best of their ability. Yeah. But I, I would agree that you can't get to the top if you're a person who's thinking about others like at the top like at the very top of the pyramid Mm -hmm. if you're spending more time worried about others like coaches do coaches they really care about others and the coaches that become legends have tom brady (laughs) have bill russell yeah have michael jordan Shaq, and kobe and it brings to mind you know at a certain level is it worth it 
I wouldn't want to live that existence. Well, I mean, you think, I mean, you're right. I don't Rory McIlroy, think about how huge Rory McIlroy has to be. Rory McIlroy can go out and eat anytime he wants, anywhere he wants, and is left alone. So he and Tiger go play golf at the Bears Club a little more than a year and a half ago, and they get done playing. And Rory's like, hey, man, why don't you and, 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 and your girl and me and mine, we'll, we'll, let's go eat at your place. He goes, Rory, I can't do that. And he's like, come on, man. We, we can go out to eat. He goes, no, you don't understand. I can't go out to eat. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you're kidding me, right? You can't even go to your own restaurant? Nope. I'm like, no, if that doesn't let you know mm-hmm. that you've entered a different level, is that you have your own restaurant. <laughs> and you're still too big to go to your own restaurant. That's absurd to me. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, the only person that's been that famous, and it's I would have to be by percentage, not by total people, would be Arnold Palmer. But Arnold Palmer was an extrovert. He loved it. Tiger's introverted. He doesn't like being around a lot of people. So you compound the fact that he can't go anywhere without being recognized, and then you're dealing with somebody who can't stand being tapped on the shoulder. Can I have a picture? Can I have an autograph? <laughs> Arnold Palmer's like, yeah, come on over yeah. here. Tiger Woods is like, can you leave me alone, please? Yeah. And the level of microscope, he was the first person that was a megastar in the social media craze. And I cannot imagine the microscope that he was under. Literally, I can't imagine it. It's the... The era in which I grew up, there was it was the birth of all that 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 mania and also having access to them beyond you know yeah. I don't I wasn't alive when the Beatles were the Beatles but yeah. you only saw a limited portion of the Beatles there was no social media you couldn't catch them at, you know and take a picture of them eating dinner like no just YouTube a, no YouTube none of that stuff but I came up when Tiger was going through that when Britney Spears was going through that and all yeah. that type of stuff and like man I wouldn't want any of that like I you know to me a perfect life is establishing a level of of excellence and anonymity <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no kidding. like uh, the idea of everybody knowing who you are and all that type of stuff there, there's some level of it that i have to do in terms of marketing myself but it's unnatural for me like I, i'd much rather talk about going to concerts my wife her, she's completely energized by people and strangers and large crowds mm-hmm. To me, if I lose the ability to go to grab dinner with somebody and just have like a good conversation, ugh. (laughs) I hear that. Final question. In many ways, uh, we're largely impacted by the five most important people in our lives, people that we spend the most amount of time with. Mm -hmm. Who are the five people that have impacted your life the most to put you into the place that you're in today? Hmm. Um, My parents. So, like, are we counting them as two or a unit? That's that's two. <laughs> okay, all right. That's two. Um, my parents, um, I would say, man, that's a that's a a tough question. So, so definitely my parents. Um, I, if you had asked me this last year, we were incredibly close. I don't I don't know that this would have been my answer, but just with hindsight, uh, my uncle Russell. Um, he died last year Mm -hmm. and he was the epitome of what I'm talking about. That person who 
is committed to certain things, but also has non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, I mean, probably, if I think, 14 or 15 nieces or nephews, three children, you know, loving wife, and to a person, everybody would say, oh, I spent a ton of time with him. Or, you know, I have a ton of memories with him. Just like probably the most present person I can remember in mm. terms of just the things that matter. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a big word, present. Yeah, Very so nice. that that would be the third. The fourth, uh, I, I would say, so the, the I technically work for myself, but I'm a part of a firm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the CEO of that firm is a guy, Marcus Henderson. And I think that he was a person who showed me that as an African-American financial advisor, that you can build it your way. You know, you don't have to to work with people that don't fit your interests or that you're not familiar with or that you don't have a passion serving. Mm -hmm. Um, He was the best I had at taking me under my wing and saying this can be done. Uh, and then lastly, my uncle Brenton. So I'm named after my dad's brother Hmm. and, um, he was, he, when I was growing up, um, all my family was present, but he and I had our own thing, Mm -hmm. you know, just had our own thing. And he was really, really mischievous, um, impish would probably be the word, you know, um, really kind and loving and stuff. And he was just one of those guys that just always kept you laughing. Um, I'm not a very serious person. Mm-hmm. And like, to me, all, all those people that I'm naming, like they, they had the things that mattered. They, I feel like they were happy, Yeah, you know, but it was never 100% tied to some pursuit when I look at what I'm trying to do, I'm very motivated. I'm self-motivated. But I always want to stay in that place where if you took it all, it wouldn't really change me. Yeah. That's awesome stuff. Brent, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your life story and some really important stories. But I look forward to... uh, seeing you grow man see if we can top 50 and under 50 <laughs> see what you got. I'm gonna go for it <laughs> I appreciate it man thank you All so right. much absolutely Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses whether internally or externally Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.